0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Today's reading by Daniel Harris. The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, or the Preservation of Favoured Races in the Struggle for Life. 6th London Edition, by Charles Darwin. Chapter number six, part one. Difficulties of the theory. Chapter contents include, difficulties of the theory of descent with modification, absence or rarity of transitional varieties, transitions in habits of life, diversified habits in the same species, species with habits widely different from those of their allies, organs of extreme perfection, modes of transition, cases of difficulty, natura non facit saltum, organs of small importance, organs not in all cases absolutely perfect, the law of unity of type and of the conditions of existence embraced by the theory of natural selection. Long before the reader has arrived at this part of my work, a crowd of difficulties will have occurred to him. Some of them are so serious that to this day I can hardly reflect on them without being in some degree staggered. But, to the best of my judgment, the greater number are only apparent, and those that are real are not, I think, fatal to the theory. These difficulties and objections may be classed under the following heads. First, why... If species have descended from other species by fine gradations, do we not everywhere see innumerable transitional forms? Why is not all nature in confusion, instead of the species being, as we see them, well defined? Secondly, is it possible that an animal having, for instance, the structure and habits of a bat, could have been formed by the modification of some other animal with widely different habits and structure? Can we believe that natural selection could produce, on the one hand, an organ of trifling importance, such as the tail of a giraffe, which serves as a fly-flapper, and, on the other hand, an organ so wonderful as the eye? Thirdly, can instincts be acquired and modified through natural selection? What shall we say to the instinct which leads the bee to make cells? which has practically anticipated the discoveries of profound mathematicians? Fourthly, how can we account for species, when crossed, being sterile and producing sterile offspring, whereas, when varieties are crossed, their fertility is unimpaired? The first two heads will be here discussed, some miscellaneous objections in the following chapter, instinct and hybridism in the two succeeding chapters on the absence or rarity of transitional varieties as natural selection acts solely by the preservation of profitable modifications each new form will tend in a fully stocked country to take the place of and finally to exterminate its own less improved parent form and other less favored forms with which it comes into competition thus extinction and natural selection go hand in hand hence if we look at each species as it descended from some unknown form, both the parent and all the transitional varieties will generally have been exterminated by the very process of the formation and perfection of the new form. But, as by this theory innumerable transitional forms must have existed, why do we not find them embedded in countless numbers in the crust of the earth? It will be more convenient to discuss this question in the chapter on the imperfection of the geological record, and I will here only state that I believe the answer mainly lies in the record being incomparably less perfect than is generally supposed. The crust of the earth is a vast museum, but the natural collections have been imperfectly made, and only at long intervals of time. But it may be urged that when several closely allied species inhabit the same territory, we surely ought to find at the present time many transitional forms. Let us take a simple case. In travelling from north to south over a continent, we generally meet at successive intervals with closely allied or representative species, evidently filling nearly the same place in the natural economy of the land. These representative species often meet and interlock and as the one becomes rarer and rarer the other becomes more and more frequent till the one replaces the other but if we compare these species where they intermingle they are generally as absolutely distinct from each other in every detail of structure as are specimens taken from the metropolis inhabited by each by my theory these allied species are descended from a common parent and during the process of modification each has become adapted to the conditions of life of its own region and has supplanted and exterminated its original parent form and all the transitional varieties between its past and present states. Hence, we ought not to expect at the present time to meet with numerous transitional varieties in each region, though they must have existed there, and may be embedded there in a fossil condition. But in the intermediate region, having intermediate conditions of life, why do we not now find closely linking intermediate varieties? This difficulty for a long time quite confounded me, but I think it can be in the large part explained. In the first place, we should be extremely cautious in inferring, because an area is now continuous, that it has been continuous during a long period. Geology would lead us to believe that most continents have been broken up into islands even during the later tertiary periods, and in such islands distinct species might have been separately formed without the possibility of intermediate varieties existing in the intermediate zones. By changes in the form of the land and of the climate, marine areas now continuous must often have existed within recent times in a far less continuous and uniform condition than at present. But I will pass over this way of escaping from the difficulty, for I believe that many perfectly defined species have been formed on strictly continuous areas, Though I do not doubt that the formerly broken condition of areas now continuous has played an important part in the formation of new species, more especially with freely crossing and wandering animals. In looking at species as they are now distributed over a wide area, we generally find them tolerably numerous over a large territory, then becoming somewhat abruptly rarer and rarer on the confines, and finally disappearing hence the neutral territory between two representative species is generally narrow in comparison with the territory proper to each we see the same fact in ascending mountains and sometimes it is quite remarkable how abruptly as alpha de Kendall has observed a common alpine species disappears the same fact has been noted by e forbes in sounding the depths of the sea with the dredge to those who look at climate and the physical conditions of life as the all-important elements of distribution these facts ought to cause surprise, as climate and height or depth graduate away insensibly. But when we bear in mind that almost every species, even in its metropolis, would increase immensely in numbers were it not for other competing species, that nearly all either prey on or serve as prey for others, in short, that each organic being is either directly or indirectly related in the most important manner to other organic beings, we see that the range of the inhabitants of any country by no means exclusively depends on insensibly changing physical conditions, but in large part on the presence of other species on which it lives, or by which it is destroyed, or with which it comes into competition. And as these species are already defined objects, not blending one into another by insensible gradations, the range of any one species, depending as it does on the range of others, will tend to be sharply defined. Moreover, each species on the confines of its range, where it exists in lessened numbers, will, during fluctuations in the number of its enemies or of its prey, or in the nature of the seasons, be extremely liable to utter extermination, and thus its geographical range will come to be still more sharply defined. As allied or representative species, when inhabiting a continuous area, are generally distributed in such a manner that each has a wide range with a comparatively narrow neutral territory between them in which they become rather suddenly rarer and rarer. As varieties do not essentially differ from species, the same rule will probably apply to both. And if we take a varying species inhabiting a very large area, we shall have to adapt two varieties to two large areas and a third variety to a narrow intermediate zone. The intermediate variety consequently will exist in lesser numbers from inhabiting a narrow and lesser area and practically as far as i can make out this rule holds good with varieties in a state of nature i have met with striking instances of the rule in the case of varieties intermediate between well-marked varieties in the genus balanus and it would appear from information given me by mr watson dr asa gray and mr wollaston that generally, when varieties intermediate between two other forms occur, they are much rarer numerically than the forms which they connect. Now, if we may trust these facts and inferences, and conclude that varieties linking two other varieties together generally have existed in lesser numbers than the forms which they connect, then we can understand why intermediate varieties should not endure for very long periods. Why, as a general rule, they should be exterminated and disappear, sooner than the forms which they originally linked together. For any form existing in lesser numbers would, as already remarked, run a greater chance of being exterminated than one existing in large numbers, and in this particular case, the intermediate form would be eminently liable to the inroads of closely allied forms existing on both sides of it. But it is a far more important consideration that, During the process of further modification, by which two varieties are supposed to be converted and perfected into two distinct species, the two which exist in larger numbers, from inhabiting larger areas, will have a great advantage over the intermediate variety, which exists in smaller numbers in a narrow and intermediate zone. For forms existing in larger numbers will have a better chance, within any given period, and presenting further favourable variations for natural selection to seize on, than will the rarer forms which exist in lesser numbers. Hence, the more common forms, in the race for life, will tend to beat and supplant the less common forms, for these will be more slowly modified and improved. It is the same principle which, as I believe, accounts for the common species in each country, as shown in the second chapter, presenting on an average a greater number of well-marked varieties than do the rarer species. I may illustrate what I mean by supposing three varieties of sheep to be kept, one adapted to an extensive mountainous region, a second to a comparatively narrow hilly tract, and a third to the wide plains in the base, and that the inhabitants are all trying with equal steadiness and skill to improve their stocks by selection. The chances in this case will be strongly in favour of the great holders on the mountains or on the plains improving their breeds more quickly than the small holders on the intermediate narrow hilly tract and consequently the improved mountain or plain breed will soon take the place of the less improved hill breed and thus the two breeds which originally existed in greater numbers will come into close contact with each other without the interposition of the supplanted intermediate hill variety. To sum up, I believe that species come to be tolerably well defined objects and do not at any one period present an inextricable chaos of varying intermediate links. First, because new varieties are very slowly formed, for variation is a slow process and natural selection can do nothing until favorable individual differences or variations occur, and until a place in the natural polity of a country can be better fitted by some modification of some one or more of its inhabitants. And such new places will depend on slow changes of climate, or on the occasional immigration of new inhabitants, and, probably, in a still more important degree, on some of the old inhabitants becoming slowly modified, the new forms thus produced and the old ones acting and reacting on each other. So that, in any one region and at any one time, we ought to see only a few species presenting slight modifications of structure in some degree permanent. And this, assuredly, we do see. Secondly, areas now continuous must often have existed within the recent period as isolated portions, in which many forms, more especially among the classes which unite for each birth and wander much, may have separately been rendered sufficiently distinct to rank as a representative species in this case intermediate varieties between the several representative species and their common parent must formerly have existed within each isolated portion of the land but these links during the process of natural selection will have been supplanted and exterminated so that they will no longer be found in a living state thirdly when two or more varieties have been formed in different portions of a strictly continuous area, intermediate varieties will, it is probable, at first have been formed in the intermediate zones, but they will generally have had a short duration, for these intermediate varieties will, from reasons already assigned, namely from what we know of the actual distribution of closely allied or representative species, and likewise of acknowledged varieties, exist in the intermediate zones in lesser numbers than the varieties which they tend to connect. From this cause alone, the intermediate varieties will be liable to accidental extermination, and during the process of further modification through natural selection, they will almost certainly be beaten and supplanted by the forms which they connect, for these, from existing in greater numbers, will, in the aggregate, present more varieties and thus be further improved through natural selection and gain further advantages. Lastly, looking not to any one time, But at all time, if my theory be true, numberless intermediate varieties, linking closely together all the species of the same group, must assuredly have existed, but the very process of natural selection constantly tends, as has been so often remarked, to exterminate the parent forms in the intermediate links. Consequently, evidence of their former existence could be found only among fossil remains, which are preserved, as we shall attempt to show in a future chapter, in an extremely imperfect and intermittent record. ON THE ORIGIN AND TRANSITION OF ORGANIC BEINGS WITH PECULIAR HABITS AND STRUCTURE It has been asked by the opponents of such views as I hold, how, for instance, could a land carnivorous animal have been converted into one with aquatic habits, for how could the animal in its transitional state have subsisted? It would be easy to show that there now exist carnivorous animals presenting close intermediate grades from strictly terrestrial to aquatic habits, and as each exists by struggle for life it is clear that each must be well adapted to its place in nature look at the mastella vision of north america which has webbed feet and which resembles an otter in its fur short legs and form of tail during summer this animal dies for and preys on fish but during the long winter it leaves the frozen waters and preys like other pole cats, on mice and land animals if a different case has been taken and it had been asked how an insectivorous quadruped could possibly have converted into a flying bat, the question would have been far more difficult to answer. Yet I think such difficulties have little weight. Here, as on other occasions, I lie under a heavy disadvantage, for, out of the many striking cases which I have collected, I can only give one or two instances of transitional habits and structures in allied species, and of diversified habits, either consonant or occasional, in the same species, and it seems to me that nothing less than a long list of such cases is sufficient to lessen the difficulty in any particular case like that of the bat. Look at the family of squirrels. Here we have the finest gradation from animals with their tails only slightly flattened, and from others, as Sir Richardson has remarked, with the posterior part of their bodies rather wide and with the skin on their flanks rather full, to the so-called flying squirrels, and flying squirrels have their limbs and even the base of the tail united by a broad expanse of skin, which serves as a parachute and allows them to glide through the air to an astonishing distance from tree to tree. We cannot doubt that each structure is of use to each kind of squirrel in its own country, by enabling it to escape birds or beasts of prey, or to collect food more quickly, or, as there is reason to believe, to lessen the danger from occasional falls but it does not follow from this fact that the structure of each squirrel is the best that it is possible to conceive under all possible conditions. Let the climate and vegetation change, let other competing rodents or new beasts of prey immigrate, or old ones become modified, and all analogy would lead us to believe that some, at least, of the squirrels would decrease in numbers or become exterminated, unless they also become modified and improved in structure in a corresponding manner. Therefore, I can see no difficulty more especially under changing conditions of life, in the continued preservation of individuals with fuller and fuller flank membranes, each modification being useful, each being propagated, until by the accumulated effects of this process of natural selection, a perfect so-called flying squirrel was produced. Now look at the galliopithecus, or the so-called flying lemur, which was formerly ranked among bats, but is now believed to belong to the Insectivoria. An extremely wide flank membrane stretches from the corner of the jaw to the tail and includes the limbs with elongated fingers. This flank membrane is furnished with an extensor muscle. Although no graduated links of structure fitted for gliding through the air now collect the galliopithecus with other insectivora, yet there is no difficulty in supposing that such links formerly existed and that each was developed in the same manner as with the less perfectly gliding squirrels each grade structure having been useful to its possessor nor can i see any insuperable difficulty in further believing it possible that the membrane connected fingers and forearm of the galliopithecus might have been greatly lengthened by natural selection and this as far as the organs of flight are concerned would have converted the animal into a bat in certain bats in which the wing membrane extends from the top of the shoulder to the tail and includes the hind legs we perhaps see traces of an apparatus originally fitted for gliding through the air rather than for flight if about a dozen genera of birds were to become extinct who would have ventured to surmise that birds might have existed which used their wings solely as flappers like the logger-headed duck mycopeturus of Aiton, as fins in the water and as front legs on the land like the penguin as sails like the ostrich and functioning for no purpose like the apterus Yet the structure of each of these birds is good for it, under the conditions of life to which it is exposed, for each has to live by a struggle, but it is not necessarily the best possible under all possible conditions. It must not be inferred from these remarks that any of the grades of wing structure here alluded to, which perhaps may all be the result of disuse, indicate the steps by which birds actually acquire their perfect power of flight, but they serve to show what diversified means of transition are at least possible. Seeing a few members of such water-breeding classes as the crustacea and mollusca are adapted to live on the land, and seeing that we have flying birds and mammals, flying insects of the most diversified types, and formerly had flying reptiles, it is conceivable that flying fish, which now glide far through the air, slightly rising and turning by the aid of their fluttering fins, might have been modified into perfectly winged animals. If this had been effected, Who would have ever imagined that in an early transitional state they had been inhabitants of the open ocean, and had used their incipient organs of flight exclusively, so far as we know, to escape being devoured by other fish? When we see any structure highly perfected for any particular habit, as the wings of a bird for flight, we should bear in mind that animals displaying early transitional grades of the structure will seldom have survived to the present day, for they will have been supplanted by their successors which were gradually rendered more perfect through natural selection furthermore we may conclude that transitional states between structures fitted for very different habits of life will rarely have been developed at an early period in great numbers and under many subordinate forms thus to return to our imaginary illustration of the flying fish it does not seem probable that fishes capable of true flight would have been developed under many subordinate forms For taking prey of many kinds in many ways on the land and in the water until their organs of flight had come to a high stage of perfection, so as to have given them a decided advantage over other animals in the battle for life. Hence the chance of discovering species with transitional grades of structure in a fossil condition will always be less from their having existed in lesser numbers than in the case of species with fully developed structures. I will now give two or three instances both have diversified and have changed habits in the individuals of the same species. In either case it would be easy for natural selection to adapt the structure of the animal to its changed habits, or exclusively to one of its several habits. It is, however, difficult to decide and immaterial for us whether habits generally change first and structure afterwards, or whether slight modifications of structure lead to changed habits, both probably often occurring almost simultaneously. Of cases of changed habits, it will suffice merely to allude to that of the many British insects which now feed on exotic plants, or exclusively on artificial substances. Of diversified habits, innumerable instances could be given. I have often watched a tyrant flycatcher, Sarophagus sulphuratus, in South America, hovering over one spot and then proceeding to another, like a kestrel, and at other times standing stationary on the margin of water, and then dashing into it like a kingfisher at a fish. In our own country, the larger titmouse, Paris Major, may be seen climbing branches, almost like a creeper. It sometimes, like a shrike, kills small birds by blows on the head. And I have many times seen and heard it hammering the seeds of the yew on a branch, and thus breaking them like a nuthatch. In North America, the black bear was seen by hern swimming for hours with widely open mouth, thus catching, almost like a whale, insects in the water. As we sometimes see individuals following habits different from those proper to their species and to the other species of the same genus, we might expect that such individuals would occasionally give rise to new species having anomalous habits, and with their structure either slightly or considerably modified from that of their type, and such instances occur in nature. Can a more striking instance of adaptation be given than that of a woodpecker for climbing trees and seizing insects in the chinks of the bark? Yet in North America there are woodpeckers which feed largely on fruit, and others with elongated wings which chase insects on the wing. On the plains of La Plata, where hardly a tree grows, there is a woodpecker, Colaptis campestris, which has two toes before and two behind, a long pointed tongue, pointed tail feathers, sufficiently stiff to support the bird in vertical position on a post, but not so stiff as in the typical woodpeckers, and a straight strong beak. The beak, however, is not so straight or so strong as in the typical woodpeckers, but is strong enough to bore into wood. Hence this colpatus, in all the essential parts of its structure, is a woodpecker. Even in such trifling characters as the colouring, the harsh tone of the voice, and undulatory flight, its close blood relationship to our common woodpecker is plainly declared. Yet, as I can assert, not only from my own observations but from those of the accurate azara in certain large districts it does not climb trees and it makes its nest in holes and banks. in certain other districts however this same woodpecker as mr hudson states frequents trees and borrows holes in the trunk for its nest I may mention as another illustration of the varied habits of this genus that a Mexican colpatis has been described by De Saussure as boring holes into hard wood in order to lay up a store of acorns. Petrels are the most aerial of oceanic birds, but, in the quiet sounds of Tierra del Fugo, the Pafanuria berardi, in its general habits, in its astonishing power of diving, in its manner of swimming and flying when made to take flight, would be mistaken by any one for an ock or a grebe. Nevertheless, it is essentially a petrel, but with many parts of its organization profoundly modified in relation to its new habits of life, whereas the woodpecker of La Plata has had its structure only slightly modified. In the case of the water uzal, the acutest observer, by examining its dead body, would never have suspected its sub-aquatic habits yet this bird which is allied to the thrush family subsists by diving using its wings under water and grasping stones with its feet all the members of the great order of hymenopateris insects are terrestrial excepting the genus proctotrups which sir john lubbock has discovered to be aquatic in its habits it often enters the water and dives about by the use not of its legs but of its wings and remains as long as four hours beneath the surface, yet it exhibits no modification in structure in accordance with its abnormal habits. He who believes that each being has been created as we now see it, must occasionally have felt surprised when he is met with an animal having habits and structure not in agreement. What can be plainer than that the webbed feet of ducks and geese are formed for swimming? Yet there are upland geese with webbed feet which rarely go near the water, and no one except Audubon has seen the frigate bird, which has all its four toes webbed, alight on the surface of the ocean. On the other hand, Grebes and Coots are eminently aquatic, although their toes are only bordered by membrane. What seems plainer than that the long toes, not furnished with membrane, of the grelators, are formed for walking over swamps and floating plants? The water hand and land rail are members of this order, Yet the first is nearly as aquatic as the coot, and the second is nearly as terrestrial as the quail or partridge. In such cases, and many others could be given, habits have changed without a corresponding change of structure. The webbed feet of the upland goose may be said to have become almost rudimentary in function, though not in structure. In the frigate bird, the deeply scooped membrane between the toes shows that structure has begun to change. He who believes in separate and innumerable acts of creation may say that, in these cases, it has pleased Creator to cause a being of one type to take the place of one belonging to another type, but this seems to me only restating the fact in dignified language. He who believes in the struggle for existence and in the principle of natural selection will acknowledge that every organic being is constantly endeavouring to increase its numbers, and that if any one being varies ever so little, either inhabits her structure, and thus gains an advantage over some other inhabitant of the same country, it will seize on the place of that inhabitant, however different that may be from its own place. Hence it will cause him no surprise that there should be geese and frigate birds with webbed feet, living on the dry land and rarely alighting on the water, that there should be long-toed corncrakes, living in meadows instead of in swamps, that there should be woodpeckers where hardly a tree grows, that there should be diving thrushes and diving hymenopatera, and petrels with the habits of ox. ORGANS OF EXTREME PERFECTION AND COMPLICATION To suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, could have been formed by natural selection seems i freely confess absurd in the highest degree when it was first said that the sun stood still and the world turned round the common sense of mankind declared the doctrine false but the old saying of vox populi vox dei as every philosopher knows cannot be trusted in science reason tells me that if numerous gradations from a simple and imperfect eye to one complex and perfect can be shown to exist each grade being useful to its possessor, as is certainly the case, if further, the eye ever varies and the variations be inherited, as is likewise certainly the case, and if such variations should be useful to any animal under changing conditions of life, then the difficulty of believing that a perfect and complex eye could be formed by natural selection, though insuperable by our imagination, should not be considered as subversive of the theory. How a nerve comes to be sensitive to light hardly concerns us more than how life itself originated. But I may remark that, as some of the lowest organisms in which nerves cannot be detected are capable of perceiving light, it does not seem impossible that certain sensitive elements in their sarcodes should become aggregated and developed into nerves, endowed with this special sensibility. In searching for the gradations through which an organ in any species has been perfected, we ought to look exclusively to its lineal progenitors but this is scarcely ever possible and we are forced to look to other species and genera of the same group that is to the collateral descendants from the same parent form in order to see what gradations are possible and for the chance of some gradations having been transmitted in an unaltered or little altered condition but the state of the same organ in distinct classes may incidentally throw light on the steps by which it has been perfected the simplest organ which can be called an eye consists of an optic nerve surrounded by pigment cells and covered by translucent skin but without any lens or other refractive body we may however according to m descend even a step lower and find aggregates of pigment cells apparently serving as organ's vision without any nerves and resting merely on sarcotic tissue eyes of the above simple nature are not capable of distinct vision and serve only to distinguish light from darkness. In certain starfishes, small depressions in the layer of pigment which surrounds the nerve are filled, as described by the author just quoted, with transparent gelatinous matter projecting with a convex surface, like the cornea in the higher animals. He suggests that this serves not to form an image, but only to concentrate the luminous rays and render their perception more easy. In this concentration of the rays, we gain the first and by far the most important step towards the formation of a true, picture-forming eye, for we have only to place the naked extremity of the optic nerve, which in some of the lower animals lies deeply buried in the body, and in some near the surface, at the right distance from the concentrating apparatus, and an image will be formed on it. In the great class of the articulata, we may start from an optic nerve simply coated with pigment, the latter sometimes forming a sort of pupil, but destitute of lens or other optical contrivance. With insects it is now known that the numerous facets on the cornea of their great compound eyes form true lenses, and that the cones include curiously modified nervous filaments. But these organs in the articulata are so much diversified that Muller formerly made three main classes with seven subdivisions, besides a fourth main class of aggregated simple eyes. When we reflect on these facts, here given much too briefly, with respect to the wide, diversified, and graduated range of structure in the eyes of the lower animals, and when we bear in mind how small the number of all living forms must be in comparison with those which have become extinct, the difficulty ceases to be very great in believing that natural selection may have converted the simple apparatus of an optic nerve, coated with pigment and invested by transparent membrane, into an optical instrument as perfect as is possessed by any member of the articulata class. He who will go thus far, ought not to hesitate to go one step further, if he finds on finishing this volume that large bodies of facts, otherwise inexplicable, can be explained by the theory of modification through natural selection. He ought to admit that a structure even as perfect as an eagle's eye might thus be formed, although in this case he does not know of the transitional states it has been objected that in order to modify the eye and still preserve it as a perfect instrument many changes would have to be effected simultaneously which it is assumed could not be done through natural selection but as i have attempted to show in my work on the variation of domestic animals it is not necessary to suppose that the modifications were all simultaneous if they were extremely slight and gradual different kinds of modification would also serve for the same general purpose as mr wallace has remarked if a lens has too short or too long a focus it may be amended either by alteration of curvature or an alteration of density if the curvature be irregular and the rays do not converge to a point then any increased regularity of curvature will be an improvement so the contraction of the iris and the muscular movements of the eye are neither of them essential to vision but only improvements which might have been added and perfected at any stage of the construction of the instrument within the highest division of the animal kingdom namely the vertebrata we can start from an eye so simple that it consists as in the lancelet of a little sack of transparent skin furnished with a nerve and lined with pigment but destitute of any other apparatus in fishes and reptiles as owen has remarked the range of gradation from dioptric structures is very great it is a significant fact that even in man according to the high authority of virchow the beautiful crystalline lens is formed in the embryo by an accumulation of epidermic cells lying in a sac-like fold of the skin and the vitreous body is formed from embryonic subcutaneous tissue to arrive however at a just conclusion regarding the formation of the eye with all its marvellous yet not absolutely perfect characters it is indispensable that the reason should conquer the imagination but I have felt the difficulty far too keenly to be surprised at others hesitating to extend the principle of natural selection to so startling a length. It is scarcely possible to avoid comparing the eye with the telescope. We know that this instrument has been perfected by the long-continued efforts of the highest human intellects, and we naturally infer that the eye has been formed by a somewhat analogous process. But may not this interference be presumptuous? Have we any right to assume that the Creator works by intellectual powers like those of man? If we must compare the eye to an optical instrument, we ought in imagination to take a thick layer of transparent tissue, with spaces filled with fluid, and with a nerve sensitive to light beneath, and then suppose every part of this layer to be continually changing slowly in density, so as to separate into layers of different densities and thickness, place different distances from each other, and with the surfaces of each layer slowly changing in form. Further, we must suppose that there is a power, represented by natural selection or the survival of the fittest, always intently watching each slight alteration in the transparent layers, and carefully preserving each which, under varied circumstances, in any way or degree, tends to produce a distincter image. We must suppose each new state of the instrument to be multiplied by the million. Each to be preserved until a better is produced, and then the old ones to be all destroyed. In living bodies, variation will cause the slight alteration, generation will multiply them almost infinitely, and natural selection will pick out with unerring skill each improvement. Let this process go on for millions of years, and during each year on millions of individuals of many kinds and may we not believe that a living obstacle instrument might thus be formed as superior to one of glass as the works of the creator are to those of man modes of transition if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications my theory would absolutely break down but i can find out no such case no doubt many organs exist of which we do not know the transitional grades more especially if we look to much isolated species around which according to the theory there has been much extinction Or again, if we take an organ common to all the members of a class, for in this latter case the organ must have been originally formed at a remote period, since which all the many members of the class have been developed, and in order to discover the early transitional grades through which the organ has passed, we should have to look to very ancient ancestral forms, long since become extinct. We should be extremely cautious in concluding that an organ could not have been formed by transitional gradations of some kind. Numerous cases could be given among the lower animals of the same organ performing at the same time wholly distinct functions. Thus, in the larva of the dragonfly and in the fish cobites, the alimentary canal respires, digests, and excretes. IN THE HYDRA THE ANIMAL MAY BE TURNED INSIDE OUT, AND THE EXTERIOR SURFACE WILL THEN DIGEST AND THE STOMACH RESPIRE. IN SUCH CASES NATURAL SELECTION MIGHT SPECIALIZE, IF ANY ADVANTAGE WERE THUS GAINED, THE WHOLE OR PART OF AN ORGAN, WHICH HAD PREVIOUSLY PERFORMED TWO FUNCTIONS FOR ONE FUNCTION ALONE, AND THUS BY INSENSIBLE STEPS GREATLY CHANGE ITS NATURE. Many plants are known which regularly produce at the same time differently constructed flowers, and if such plants were to produce one kind alone, a great change would be effected with comparative suddenness in the character of the species. It is, however, probable that the two sorts of flowers born by the same plant were originally differentiated by finely graduated steps, which may still be followed in some few cases. Again, two distinct organs or the same organ under two very different forms may simultaneously perform in the same individual the same function and this is an extremely important means of transition to give one instance there are fish with gills or brackenae that breathe the air dissolved in the water at the same time that they breathe free air in their swim-bladders this latter organ being divided by highly vascular partitions and having a ductus pneumaticus for the supply of air To give another instance from the vegetable kingdom, plants climb by three distinct means, by spirally twining, by clasping a support with their sensitive tendrils, and by the emission of aerial rootlets. These three means are usually found in distinct groups, but some few species exhibit two of the means, or even all three, combined in the same individual in all such cases one of the two organs might readily be modified and perfected so as to perform all the work being aided during the process of modification by the other organ and then this other organ might be modified for some other and quite distinct purpose or be wholly obliterated the illustration of the swim bladder in fishes is a good one because it shows us clearly the highly important fact that an organ originally constructed for one purpose namely flotation may be converted into one for a widely different purpose, namely respiration. The swim bladder has also been worked in as an accessory to the auditory organs of certain fishes. All physiologists admit that the swim bladder is homologous, or ideally similar, in position and structure with the lungs of the higher vertebrae animals hence there is no reason to doubt that the swim bladder has actually been converted into lungs or an organ used exclusively for respiration according to this view it may be inferred that all vertebrae animals with true lungs are descended by ordinary generation from an ancient and unknown prototype which was furnished with a floating apparatus or swim bladder we can thus as i infer from professor owen's interesting description of these parts understand the strange fact that every particle of food and drink which we swallow has to pass over the orifice of the trachea with some risk of falling into the lungs notwithstanding the beautiful contrivance by which the glottis is closed in the higher vertebrata the branchiae have wholly disappeared but in the embryo the slits on the side of the neck and the loop-like course of the arteries still mark their former position but it is conceivable that the now utterly lost brackenae might have been gradually worked in by natural selection for some distinct purpose. For instance, Landois has shown that the wings of insects are developed from the trachea. It is therefore highly probable that in this great class organs which once served for respiration have been actually converted into organs for flight." In considering transitions of organs, it is so important to bear in mind the probability of conversion from one function to another that I will give another instance. Pedunculated curopennies have two minute folds of skin, called by me ovigorous frena, which serve, through a means of sticky secretion, to retain the eggs until they are hatched within the sac these carapetes have no brachynae the whole surface of the body and of the sac together with the small frenna serving for respiration the balandi, or cecily carapetes, on the other hand have no vigorous frenna the eggs lying loose at the bottom of the sac within the well enclosed shell but they have in the same relative position with the frenna large much-folded membranes which freely communicate with the circulatory lacunae of the sac and body and which have been considered by all naturalists as brachinii now i think no one will dispute that the ovigerous frena, in the one family are strictly homologous with the other brachinii of the other family indeed they graduate into each other therefore it need not be doubted that the two little folds of skin which originally served as a vigorous phrenna but which likewise very slightly aided in the act of respiration have been gradually converted by natural selection into brachyna simply through an increase in their size and the obliteration of their adhesive glands if all pedunculated curapides had become extinct and they have suffered far more extinction than have sessile curapides who could ever have imagined that the brachynae in this latter family had originally existed as organs for preventing the ova from being washed out of the sac there is another possible mode of transition namely through the acceleration or retardation of the period of reproduction this has lately been insisted on by professor cope and others in the united states it is now known that some animals are capable of reproduction at a very early age before they have acquired their perfect characters and if this power became thoroughly well developed to the species it seems probable that the adult stage of development would sooner or later be lost and in this case especially if the larva differed much from the mature form the character of the species would be greatly changed and degraded again not a few animals after arriving at maturity go on changing in character during nearly their whole lives. With mammals, for instance, the form of the skull is often much altered with age, of which Dr. Murray has given some striking instances with seals. End of chapter 6 Part 1